Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you today. Uh, excited to jump back into the book of Acts. I had an interesting moment this past week, kind of a trifecta of events that I found interesting. Um, Chaz Rutledge was at our house um, because, I don't know if you know this, Chaz is a plumber, uh, owns his own plumbing business, so uh, Rutledge Plumbing for all your plumbing needs. Feel free to see him. Yes. Um, well, the thing is, uh, we have a house that was built in the 70s, and so that means there's always something that needs to be fixed, and it just so happened uh, that the toilet in our guest bath uh, was not working, and we're hosting a community group leader meeting, and so we don't want you in our bathroom, so we had to call Chaz to come fix the the public toilet, right? So um, we're having this conversation just about life, and the conversation drifts to road rage in the Metroplex, Right? Um, I don't know if you walk everywhere, you might not have noticed, but if you own a vehicle, perhaps you've noticed good grief, people are just a little edgy these days, right? And so don't point at your spouse, please. Um, that just happened. Um, so we're talking about, man, people are just so angry. And then I sit down and hop online for a second, and one of the top five, I guess, top three maybe, trending stories was about Tension in our country, tension in the culture. And it was actually a really heavy article that had to do with uh, mass shootings and how legislation isn't uh, going to fix this problem, right? And and then it was interesting. So we're, we're talking about road rage. We're talking about the tension in the culture. And then two articles after that said tennis star bloodies his own face. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, Rafael Nadal, right, one of the greatest tennis players in the world at the U.S. Open. Um, he has this, I, I watched a video of it because I'm like, I, I want to know what happens here. I don't play tennis, but it looked like a really athletic move, right? Uh, he's like diving for the ball and his momentum's pushing him so uh, much to his right that his head ends up down by his feet. I can't even bend that way. And as he follows through on this amazing return, the racket bounces off the ground and hits him square in the face. And he sure enough is like bleeding from his face, you know. And I'm like, this is why I watch tennis, not play tennis. But that little trifecta of of stories kind of coming together, we're so mad at each other when really all we're doing is bloody in our own face with most of this conflict. Like we're really only injuring ourselves with all of this attack and all of this tension. And most of the things that we're so tense about and that there's so much conflict about isn't even worth fighting about. And we're fighting about it with people who are never going to see the world through our lenses anyways. But sometimes there's something worth taking a stand for. Not not these small little things that we tend to fight about. Not we think that person cut us off in traffic and therefore we should follow them home and have a conversation about their driving habits. There's things actually worth saying, time out, I, we need to draw a line in the sand. And so the, the text we're going to look at this morning is one of those that's worth drawing a line in the sand about. As a matter of fact, the implications are quite frankly life-changing. So grab your Bible this morning. If you don't have one, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you're a guest today, we want to invite you to join us in our tradition where we hold up our Bibles and say a creed together before we dive into this book. So let's hold them up in the air and let's say this together this morning. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart 
and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Turn to Acts chapter 15. Actually, we're going to look at the last couple of verses of Acts chapter 14, um, but really diving into Acts chapter 15. It's page 868. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, Acts chapter uh, 15, last couple of verses of Acts chapter 14. When we've been working through this, if you're a guest today, we've been walking through verse by verse and story by story through this text. And, um, the idea, we took a break for the summer and the idea was that, uh, moving into August, we were going to jump back into the book of Acts and pick up our pace. Um, we've not really sped up at all. Um, and we're actually slowing down even more as we get to chapter 15. Uh, we're probably going to spend the next three weeks in maybe four in the Acts chapter 15. But then we're going to pick up the pace after that. I promise uh, we're, we're getting there. This ended, Acts chapter 14, with the Apostle Paul's first big kind of step of courage and, and his first recorded sermon. And it ends with even more court, courage on his part, right? Like he is... He's so badly beaten that they think he's dead. He gets up, goes back to the place that just tried to execute him. What courage. And then begins to foster what we would call what community among the people of God. And he, he begins, this is on his first ever missionary journey, right? He, he begins to move into some new regions and we pick back up at the end of chapter 14 where he's now come back to where he was sent out of. He's returned to the city of Antioch where they had commended to the grace of God the work they'd fulfilled. Verse 27, when they arrived back to Antioch and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. Most importantly, how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, to non-Jewish people, which is going to be the heart of the uh, the disagreement that we're going to look at this morning. And they remained, it's just so weird sometimes how the phrasing of the Bible goes, they remained no little time with the disciples. In case it's not obvious, that means much time. Like no little means a lot. I'm not really sure why it doesn't say a lot. <laughs> But it says no little. And we're actually going to see that odd phrasing in just a minute where it also just means like a lot. Okay, so hang with me. Verse number one. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So there's, there's some, uh, there's just the reality that some disagreements are, are worth having out. Worth arguing about, right? Disagreements happen. Disagreements even happen among spiritual people. One of the things we're going to see in this text is Luke, the, the author of this, goes out of his way to make sure we understand that everybody involved in this disagreement is a believer in Jesus. It's possible to believe in Jesus and not see things the same way, right? And what we see in the scriptures already now, because uh, this is the second kind of big disagreement in this fragile new little thing called ecclesia, called church. We see there's a way to handle disagreements, right? If you remember, those of you who are with us in the spring, in Acts chapter 6, there's this disagreement where um, the, the Greek-speaking and, and Greek-cultured Jewish men and women, the, the Hellenistic Jews they were called, they're like, hey, time out. Our widows seem to be getting taken care of slower than the fully Jewish widows 
is there like racism going on here or whatever? And, and here's what happened in Acts chapter six. If you haven't, if you weren't here and you haven't read it, here's what didn't happen. They didn't say, go start your own ecclesia. If you don't like what we're doing, go somewhere else. Go start a new denomination. They did not go on social media and put them on blast. Right? That is not what happened. There was no such thing as social media. But they didn't like scribble it in a stone either. Right? That There was no yelling and screaming according to the text. They just had a healthy conversation. And the amazing thing is the church leaders were like, oh, yeah, we kind of dropped the ball. My bad. Can we fix it? And they did. It's, it's amazing. Right? And so in the, in the same way here, we don't see them screaming at each other and losing their minds and whatever. This is a big deal. But this disagreement, I know the book of Acts, we've said like some big statements, right? This disagreement is about the most important thing in the universe. I mean, for people, unless you're God. If you're God, this might not be the most important thing. But if you're a human being, how we are saved is a big deal. Like, if you're perfect and you don't need rescue or, or saving grace, then this is no big deal. But for all the rest of us normal people, this is literally a disagreement about the most important thing in the world. How is someone saved? How can a person who isn't perfect go to heaven? I'm sorry, that's an important question. Because I am really far from a perfect person. Ask my family. Or even like somewhat close friends. They'll all tell you. I am really far from perfect. It's so easy. It's like speaking in tongues. Um, how a person like me can get to heaven really matters. Can we agree on that? Because we can't really move forward in the text unless we all think, well, that's a big deal, right? And specifically, this topic of what must I do to be saved is circumcision. I just wanted to pause on that word just to make everybody really uncomfortable. (laughs) My mom is watching online going, is he fixing to describe circumcision? Oh, dear heavens, I'm so glad I'm not in town. (laughs) So, like, can you you imagine if, if, if at the end of every service here we're like, if you would like prayer, please just go to the prayer room. And if you want to receive Jesus... Like we have some scalpels in, right? right? Like this is the weight of this conversation. We're giggling because we're like, "Eh." that's actually the debate. Can a person get to heaven if they're not following this particular part of the law of Moses? I would imagine that the new members classes in Ecclesia at this point were... Mostly attended by women, right? Like, what do you mean your husband had to work today? Yeah, he said he can't come. The reality is this. This disagreement about how is a person saved is still a disagreement among good people today. This is still a disagreement. And sometimes people will tell me, because there's this movement right now where it's like, hey, denominations don't matter. Take your denominational name off because people might not come and hear about Jesus. And so let's, let's just, and, and so people have asked me, they're like, well, why did, why was there ever such a thing as denominations? And the fact is, most of the denominations that splintered off were over this. How does a person get to heaven? Like that, that was actually what the conversations were about. They were important conversations. 
And how we answer that conversation or how that question, uh, answer that question rather is kind of everything. It's still a dispute today. Verse number two. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension. So there's that language again, meaning a lot of dissension. They were like, oh, uh, uh-uh. you're, you're not messing with salvation. We've watched God changing people's lives. So there was no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And what we see here is this, this kind of coming together of all of the leaders of Ecclesia at this time. Like the most influential people gathered together to, to respectfully and openly discuss this. And this is setting the stage. This is what you could call the prototype for the, the church councils that would come later, where we're determining doctrine and how do we get the Bible? Uh, what, what is in the Bible? What's just a historical book that was written around the same time? All of those things came out of these early church councils. This is the pattern that they follow. This is a pivotal moment. This is an important moment. And the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are going to travel all the way to Jerusalem. It's a long journey. And they're in the middle of this incredible missionary journey. They're seeing the gospel turn the world upside down. And here's the deal. Like, he's on quite a bit of a book tour, right? Like, he's literally writing books at this moment that we're still discussing 2,000 years later. That, like, that's the mark of success as an author, if you don't know. <laughs> like, he's writing these incredible books, and he stops all of that to have this conversation. Because God loves you so much... He wanted you to know what was necessary to get to him. This moment isn't actually about them. It's about you right here, right now, today. How does a person get to God? So they travel to Jerusalem, verse number three. So they, being sent on their way by uh, by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. Don't you think so, right? Like Phoenicia is a Gentile territory. Samaria are half Gentile and half Jewish. So he's traveling through these areas being like, hey, guess what? These people who aren't Jewish are being rescued by the Jewish Messiah. And they're like, that's awesome. You know why they responded that way? Because that's awesome. Like we get rescued by the Savior. Like Yeshua has become our redeemer. That's really good news. Worthy of great joy. Not not common familiarity and be like, yeah, I already knew that. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, the elders. They declared all that God had done with them, but some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary. Please say the word necessary. That's a big word. It is necessary. I mean, it's not phonetically a big word, it's, but, but it's uh, theologically in this moment. It's a big word. It's necessary to circumcise them in order, uh, and to order them, rather, to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. I really love that, P.S. 
This is nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. But I really love that he's like, hey, none of this was our idea. It was God's idea. That That's really good. It, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so he's probably telling them specifically a couple stories that we talked about in the spring uh, in Acts chapter, end of Acts chapter number 8. Where we have this guy from Ethiopia um, who's a, a ranking leader in, in the, the most powerful house in Egypt. And he comes to saving faith in Jesus. He's baptized, receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, he also is going to tell them probably the story of Cornelius, which only happened five chapters ago. That was chapter number 10. But scholars think that was 10 years have passed. Like he's saying for a decade, non-Jewish people have been receiving the gift of the gospel for 10 years. So he also probably told them a bunch of other stories that we don't have record of. But the interesting thing about, if you can remember back to then, both the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius, is even though they weren't Gentiles, they were Jewish-ish. Do you remember that? Like they were considered God-fearers. They practiced part of the law. They attended probably as, as close to the teachings of the synagogues as they could. They were respectful of Jewish tradition and they, they were, they were Jewish-leaning, right? But he's saying this is, this is full-blown Gentile men and women and children coming to saving faith in Jesus. Verses number eight and nine. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Oh, that's such good language there. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Oh, thank you, Jesus. He's saying there's this there's this beauty where their hearts have been, the Apostle Paul would explain later, not their own faith, were given the grace of faith to trust in the grace of the cross, and they've received the Spirit, just like us. They've been saved, just like us. They've been rescued from their sins, just like us. It's amazing, right? But then he's going to address them and say, verse number 10, Now therefore, why? Are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So there's two key messages that, that Peter's saying, and we're, we're leading towards an amazing place. Hang with me for a minute, but we got to stop for a second. Peter's saying two important things here. God's concerned about the condition of the heart, not the physical works of the body. Right. As a matter of fact, in in the the fifth book in the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, God already is beginning to whisper to them about there's this thing called the circumcision of the heart. The apostle Paul is going to repeat that language. Maybe maybe he was taking notes while Peter was talking here, and he's like, "Ooh, that's good. Hearts. Yes, I'm going to talk about that to the church in Rome." And he literally writes about circumcision of the heart in the book of Romans. There's this there's this heart thing that's way more important to God. That faith trusts in Jesus. And so he, he's saying, first of all, God gave the Gentiles salvation because of what was in their hearts, not what they did with their bodies. And then here's the second thing he's saying. The works of the body have never been able to save us. 
There's never, it, it, this is what one pastor calls it. He says, the works of the law have always been and always will be an unbearable burden. It's a yoke. It's a burden. Jesus used very similar language talking about the Pharisees in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. It's recorded, uh, Matthew 23, 4. He says the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. They themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. One pastor said that's not salvation, that's slavery. This burden of get it all right and keep all of the law, this was a burden. And I love what Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, even our fathers, anytime you hear a Jewish person talk about their fathers, they're not talking about their, like their dad. They're talking about the, the heroes of the Jewish faith. He, he's saying, listen, David didn't keep the law, right? That Moses didn't keep his own law. That they, they couldn't be perfect either and neither can we. So why are we now mixing the law with the thing that God is doing? It doesn't work. At this time in history, we did not have just the Ten Commandments. We had this thing in in history at this point called the Oral Law, where all the rules of God had so grown. Which, by the way, none of us in this room have perfectly kept the Ten Commandments. And if you doubt me, let's have a cup of coffee and have a conversation. I promise you, we haven't. That would be bad enough. But at this point, historians tell us there were 613 commands. Good luck with that. I can't keep the top 10. 613 commands that were a a yoke, a burden that were placed on the Jewish people. These 613 laws were divided into positive and negative. Into thou shalt and thou shalt not. There were 248 Thou shalts. And there were 365 thou shalt nots. One good finger wag for every day of the year. Right? Stephanie just read, his mercies are new every morning. You know what else was new every morning in the law? You better not mess up today. Well, good morning. That, that's the spirit that's hanging over keeping the law in order to get access to God. You with me? This is so important. He said, why in the world would we go backwards? Why would we go back there? If you look at um, the, the Talmud, right, the, the, the written version of what had grown into the oral law, there are 24 chapters in the Talmud about how to keep the Sabbath. 24 chapters. That, that's how much of a burden this was on God's people. There's whole chapters about whether or not you can carry a fig on the Sabbath day. And how big was the fig and how far did you carry it? Did you have like tummy issues and that's why you needed some figs? Like literally, this is the conversation in the Talmud. How far are you allowed to travel? Well, it depends. How far are you going and what is the purpose of the trip and how many people are traveling with you? All of this, all of this detail about how... To perfectly keep the Sabbath, because apparently God needed our help. When he said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, what he meant was, make a really long, complicated list of how to do so. Clearly, that's what God intended, right? In the Talmud, there is an entire section of a chapter dedicated to whether or not you're allowed to have a comb in your hair on the Sabbath. Apparently, some of you keep that part of the law. Because I'm just kidding, I'm kidding. I can't even see past my Bible. I'm just kidding. All of this burden, and he's like, why? 
Why would we go back to that? And then he says this sentence, and this is where we've been heading all morning. He says this. Verse 11. But we believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And I'm not one to correct Peter, but I really wish you to use the word only, because that's what he meant. We will be saved, all caps, only through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Like, there's nothing we can add to that. There's nothing more we need to do to fix it or, 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 or make it really take root. We're saved by grace, period. Hallelujah. There's nothing you can say, do, think, or feel to save you. I, I, I want to say three things as clear as I can this morning, and I want you to hear them, not with your ears, but with your heart. There is nothing you can say or do or think or feel to save yourself. Nothing. Nothing. When Jesus breathed his last breath, he uttered the words, it is finished, not get to work. It's done. It's enough. We believe in the sufficiency of the cross of Jesus Christ with all our hearts. Hallelujah. It's sufficient. And there's nothing we can do to replace it. And quite frankly, why would we try? What are we doing? Our works are important. God desires to bear the fruit of good works in our life for the good of the world and for his own glory. But that's fruit. It doesn't earn us anything. And we don't produce it ourselves. He's the one who produces the fruit. We cannot save ourselves and we mock the sufficiency of the cross when we add our works to saving grace. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, we talked about him a couple weeks ago, uh, his letter to P.T. Barnum. He said, trying to help God save us is to strike against his saviorship which is his very heart. We strike against the saviorship of God when we try to help him save us. We're the person who's drowning in an ocean and we're being rescued and we're like, I think I got it now. We can't save ourselves. Here's the second thing I would say to you. And we can't keep ourselves saved either. (laughs) Come on, people. I can't do anything to save me and I can't do anything to keep me saved. I play a role in my salvation called the villain, not the hero. (laughs) The hero of the story is the savior of the world. He rescues me and he keeps me by his grace. Because if I think I can't do anything to save me, but now I got to do some good things to stay saved, I'm making way too much of a big deal of my role in this whole relationship. He keeps me by his grace. And I talk to people all the time. and They're like, man, I just don't know for sure where I'm at with God. And I'm like, well, tell me what's up. And they're like, well, here's the thing I'm struggling with. I'm like, yeah, that's why you needed to be saved. Congratulations, you're qualified for saviorship. Like, no, 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 but I just don't know if I'm still his. 
And, and in that moment, I want to be encouraging to a person who's sad, but I also want to be like, bro, you ain't that big a deal. Which is point number three. I can't do anything to save myself. I can't do anything to keep myself saved. And I can't do anything so bad as to nullify the grace of God in my life. Otherwise, I'd be getting saved every day. Listen, if there was a light switch to grace, I'd be in the dark most of the time. But the light of the world never takes a day off. I'm rescued by his grace. I'm kept by his grace. And praise his name. He's never disgusted at my ugliness. He's never done with me. And listen, maybe there's some people in your life that you've messed up for the last time with them. And they've just been done with you. Maybe you feel that way about yourself today. And I just want you to know, here's the beauty of being saved by grace. He's never done with you. You've never exhausted his patience with you. And it's not because you're that good. It's because he's that good. Like at your worst, he's like, I pick you again today. You're on my team. Why would he do that? Because he's full of grace. You'll never be so powerful to cancel the work of the cross on your behalf. This, this notion that when God invited me to the table, I brought nothing that earned me or deserved a seat at the table. And now I think I've got to do something to deserve to stay here. Sounds kind of crazy. Sounds like the father of lies is really good at telling us that we play a bigger deal in our own salvation than we really do. And maybe you're like, Doug, you don't understand. I'm too far gone. That's the beginning of grace. This morning, I'm going to tell you, you're not too far gone. I want to tell you that. That might would trend on social media. You're not too. You are too far gone. You can't earn your way back. (laughs) I'm too far gone. The Apostle Paul reminded the church at Ephesus how good Jesus was by saying, remember, you were separated from Christ. That's how far gone you were. Separated. Like two different universes. You were alienated. You were strangers. You had no hope. And you were without God in this world. How's that for too far gone? But God, in Christ, those who were far off, he has brought us near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We were too far gone. The only thing that could have rescued us was the blood of the lamb. Peter's like, here's the deal, y'all. It's all of grace or it's nothing. It's all a work of grace, or it's nothing. And I want to say this. you got to think, these dear Jewish brethren who've spent their whole lives trying to keep the law, that had to be hard for them. Like, we, we want to blast these guys being like, they were trying to add circumcision and the law of Moses. What a bunch of jokers. Their whole life they've been told this is the only way to get to God. Man, they believe this with all their hearts. 
Uh, I, want, I want to circle back because it's worth repeating again. Remember in Acts chapter number 13, verses 38 and 39, uh, th- this important, important phrasing here. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses is good. And it just showed us how in bondage we are to our own brokenness. The law of Moses is good for us. It it is what a holy life looks like. And when we try to keep it, we realize I'm in bondage to me. And then Jesus comes and just in his kindness sets us free. The law could never do that. Here's why I think it's important to circle back to this, because I want you to hear this. They were sincere in keeping the law. They were sincere in saying, I think you have to be circumcised in order to have access to God. You know why? They were compassionate. They're like, we don't want people to believe in Jesus and not have access to God. And we sincerely think you have to therefore keep at least some important parts of the law. I think they were sincere. And the reason I think that's important to say is we exist in a moment in our culture right now where truth is defined by sincerity. If somebody's really sincere, we're like, well, then that's their truth. How dare you not agree with them? And here's the deal. Here's the thing about this moment in Jerusalem. They were sincerely wrong. You can't add to grace in order to earn yourself a seat at the table. And no matter how sincere we are, if we're messing with the gospel of Jesus Christ and adding to it, we are sincerely wrong. The Apostle Paul would double down on this with the church in Galatia. Which, by the way, he would have just had his first introduction with them in this moment in history. He would write to them years later, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And I see myself trying to earn God's favor. And I just want to say, Paul, I'm astonished at myself too. My flesh thinks it can make God proud of me. And he says, that's a different gospel. Not that there is another one. <laughs> but there are some who trouble you, who, who want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then this is some like ramped up, turn the dial language here that I want us to see. If... Even if we, if we, or even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. There's no way he meant that. That's not. That's just aggressive. He didn't mean to say that. Verse number nine. As we have said before, now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Apparently he meant it. Why would he use such strong language? Here's why. Because we will be saved through the grace 
of the Lord Jesus just as everybody else will. And nothing else. We're saved by grace and nothing else. What he's basically telling the church in Galatia is the same thing Peter's telling them. Don't mix law and grace. I'm trying to cook up this new thing. I'm going to put a little grace, a little faith. Let's put a little law in there. He's like, no, 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 that's not, that's not what we're cooking here. That's not what we're doing here. We don't need to add to the finished work of Christ. Skip Heitzig said this. He said, they didn't know it, but they were trying to stitch up the torn veil. If you don't know what that is, we sang that lyric a few minutes ago about the veil being torn. If you're new to the things of church, there was this very thick, heavy curtain in the temple, in the tabernacle first, and then in the temple that separated humanity from the presence of God. And as Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, that veil was torn in two. It was not torn in two from the bottom up as though some priest grabbed a hold of it and tore it. This, this veil, taller than a human being can reach, was torn from top to bottom as God himself made access to himself possible through the death of his son on the cross. Skip Heitzig said, when we mix our good works and our behavior into this thing, we are stitching back together the torn veil. Maybe Paul would say we're making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. <laughs> and it's crazy. It's literally crazy. We, we've started adding a, a part of the, the routine of taking our, our senior class at Temple Christian School uh, to New York City on the last day of the trip to go, go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it, it's interesting to watch our students at this historic place completely care less like they're standing in billions like uh, countless billions of dollars worth of the most historically significant art in the world and they're like what time's our flight it's funny there's a piece of art there that even non-aficionados of art might would recognize self-portrait in a straw hat by Vincent van Gogh. It is in that museum. And I mentioned that one because it's one of the most expensive ones whose creator I can pronounce. The most expensive one there, I was going to tell you, I looked it up. I can't even, I could have read it and still not pronounced it. Uh, so I, I didn't try. But van Gogh, we've all heard of van Gogh, right? And I want you just to imagine this moment where we gather our 12th graders before this, I can't fathom how much it's worth. I don't, I don't even know. This priceless historical work of art. Do you know which one I'm talking about? The yellow hat? Can you picture it? It's a lot of yellow. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of obnoxious. Maybe it would look better if there was like a sash on the yellow hat. And I just so happened to have brought a Sharpie with me in this scenario, right? You know, Van Gogh, all he did was paint with little dots. It's not that impressive. I got this. So I want you to imagine the, 
the art curator who's giving us the tour as I pull out my Sharpie and walk up to this Van Gogh and be like, horrifying, right? Every time, every time I try to earn something I've been given in Christ, I'm a toddler drawing on the masterpiece of grace. And the scriptures say that the angels look with awe at this thing we call the gospel. And I think they go, what are you doing? Put your Sharpie away, bro. When I try to earn something from God that's already been purchased in Christ, I'm taking a Sharpie to a masterpiece. Maybe not even a Sharpie. Maybe it's worse than that. It's a crayon (laughs) to this masterpiece of grace. If you ever decide to do that, Put some eyebrows on the Mona Lisa. Like, that one actually makes sense. If you can get a Sharpie in there, she, she needs some help. Um, why, why would I color on a masterpiece? Why would I try to earn something that's been freely given in Christ? Can you just imagine for a moment, what if... Peter and Paul, and we're going to read later the little brother of Jesus named James. What if they'd have been like, let's just all get along and let this go? Like, what if we started adding the law of Moses? Because I know this conversation was about circumcision, but you know what? It turned into 611 other things, right? They would have kept one out. I don't know. Maybe the fig thing, because that's weird. How, how weird would this have gotten? So weird that probably you and I never would have heard the name of Jesus in our day, right? Like, if, if this moment, think about, think about how the hymns of the faith would have changed, right? Like amazing circumcision, how loud the sounds, <laughs> right? Come on, right? What can wash away my sins Nothing but the law of Moses, right? But no, what's amazing is his grace because we've been rescued and washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And that story made it to us in our generation because there's nothing we can say, do, think, or feel to earn our way to God. We're rescued by his grace, period. And here's what I want to say here, Dan. There's no and in our gospel. Some of you have heard me say that to you over a cup of coffee. A lot of you in this room have heard me say that before. There is no and in our theology of grace. I do not believe that we are saved by grace and circumcision. I don't believe that we're saved by grace and baptism after we've accepted grace. I don't believe that we're saved by grace and baptism Before we've accepted grace as an infant. I don't believe that we're saved by grace and communion taken in a certain way at a certain place from a certain person. I don't believe that we're saved by grace and denomination. I don't believe that we're saved by grace and helping old ladies across the street. I don't think we're saved by grace and any of our good works. We're not saved by grace and the church our mom grew up in. We're not saved by grace and... Anything else. 
or saved by grace, period. Or maybe you could say, okay, there are some ands, but they are not internal or horizontal. They're all vertical. We're saved by grace and mercy and kindness and goodness and providence and sovereign will and the, the sweet favor of his patience with people who are just too far gone. And what I find is people who've, who've grown up around the story of Jesus and then reach a point later in life where they're struggling with what we call assurance of salvation. I just don't know for sure that I'm really saved. What I have found for a lot of years is that when I've had, and maybe this isn't your story, but what I've discovered is a lot of times when people talk to me about it, I just don't know for sure. The reason that, that they're not sure is because they don't know Did I understand it all when I prayed? Did I pray the right prayer? Did I have a good enough uh, mature understanding? Did I have the right motives? And the common denominator in all those questions is I. And what I've found is a lot of my conversations with people about assurance, they want to be assured of how they did it. And not only can I not give you that assurance, it would be unloving and unkind of me to do so. I want to give you a greater assurance of how much our God rescues broken people in his grace. People who have a childlike understanding of the story and he meets them in their moment of faith and repentance. What we don't need is greater faith in our approach to God. We need greater faith in his rescue of broken people. Because we believe that we are only saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus. And that is something worth drawing a line in the sand about. This morning, either that's your story, you've accepted his grace, or maybe today is your day. Your day to say, I'm letting myself off the hook that God never put me on. I don't have to save me. And I want to accept his free gift of grace today. If you don't know for sure that you've ever experienced that, Jesus calls it being born again. It's such a new start. It's like a new birth certificate, a new beginning. And if you don't know that you've ever experienced that, as we sing this last song that declares our need for God, we'd encourage you to go to the prayer room in the back and let us just have a conversation with you about how much God loves you. If you're worshiping online, you can text pray FW to 94,000. We'd love to have that conversation with you. Because we believe that there's nothing we can say, do, think, or feel to save ourselves or keep ourselves saved or to make God regret that he saved us. He's that good.